Bibles, uh, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're visiting with us today or you haven't been here over the last several weeks, uh, let me just catch you up to speed real quick. We've been doing a series that I've entitled, Why Not Women? And what we've been doing is there's a divide in the body of Christ, excuse me, the church world, as to what to do with women in, excuse me, in the body of Christ. And uh, there are certain passages of scripture that seem to say one thing. And so we have kind of based our doctrines, if you will, on what I believe is a misunderstanding of those scriptures. And we have spent the last three weeks taking apart each of those scriptures. The first week, we actually looked at the foundation of women throughout the scripture. How they, uh, starting all the way back in Genesis when God created them, uh, why he created them, what he said about them, and uh, what the fall said about them, you know, what the judgment that was pronounced on men and women in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, how the curse has been broken, and how that matters, and redemption is a part of this. And then we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where it seems like the Apostle Paul says women should be silent in the church, but if we dig that apart, and we really look at it, and we compare it with the rest of Scripture, uh, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. Uh, We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it says that women should cover their heads in the body of Christ, and why don't we do that today, and you know, what is the Bible really saying there, and is the the wife, uh, is the husband really the head of the wife, and what does that mean if he is, and what's that look like, and so we spent three weeks uh, doing all of that, and then remember I gave you homework last week to study your wives, and hopefully you've been doing that, and can I tell you, you will study her till the day you die and never be done studying her. And that's not, um, I know we use that as like a, a late night TV joke, you know, the book of everything we know about women and it's all blank, uh, ha ha ha, uh, but there's truth in it, okay? And we definitely need to be students of them. The Bible says it is not good for man to be alone. He said that in Genesis chapter two, and that's still true today. Women, I believe, have a vital place in the body of Christ that I believe has been misunderstood and even threatened by the misunderstanding of Scripture. And so today, we're looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the last of these passages, if you will, that talk about women in the body of Christ. Um, Today, I'll probably say some things because of the foundation I've laid the other three weeks. So if you disagree with something I say... um, Go back and listen to the other three on our our website, on our podcast, and then if you still disagree after all that, then we could talk about it, but um, yeah, so that that said, the the message I prepared today is in light of those other three, so you got to keep that in mind. Today, we're going to talk about women can't teach. I mean, women can't teach? Notice the question mark. That makes the difference, doesn't it? I could say, women can't teach, but that would be an incorrect way to say that sentence, wouldn't it? Because there's a question mark, we know in English, we should say it with the inflection of, women can't teach? Ah, see, you raise your voice at the end of the sentence because that means question. This is what we teach our first graders, right? I have a first grader and she's reading at home and I remind her, hey, punctuation matters. Now we know the Greek doesn't have punctuation and so it's got to be added in, but we're going to look at what this passage is saying. And today, I've chosen the English Standard Version. Not one of my favorites, uh, not completely accurate in my opinion in translating this passage, but the best one that's there, so we're going to take it. So, for 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 through 15 says this, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit, permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. <laughs> Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now you might look at that and be like, Pastor Tom, that was the best one you could find. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it was. Um, again, as we look at this passage, and I think if you lay all of the translations side by side, in all of these passages, and you look at them all side by side, you're going to see so many differences and marked differences in the way the translators translate that. Because any way you slice it, these are difficult passages to understand in the language. And anytime, for those of you that speak more than one language, you're going to appreciate this. Anytime you try to take something in this language and make it make sense in this language, you can't just translate word for word. I mean, it, it will not mean the same thing in this language that it meant in this language if you just do literal word, 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 word. You've, and sometimes uh, you'll, you'll hear people translating and the one person will speak and the other person will be like, uh, 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 and then they'll like talk back and forth on stage trying to figure out how to agree on what needs to be said because they're like, there's no word to translate that. What are you doing to me? And anytime you work with a translator, you're not supposed to put them on the spot like that. You're supposed to use words that are going to be easier to translate or at least give them your notes in advance so that they can seamlessly present it. Otherwise, you make them look stupid. And we all think it's this person's fault that's translating. That person just doesn't know their stuff. <laughs> Could be the guy over here who didn't actually say it in a way that it was easily to translate. And so... We have to take a step back from this passage and ask ourselves first, does this passage, the way this is written, does it fit in Scripture? Does it fit in everything else we've studied and looked at? And the answer would be a resounding, no, it doesn't. This passage, the way this is written, stands in stark contrast with everything else we've talked about so far over these last three weeks. And so either the Apostle Paul is throwing all of that under the bus, and he's saying the complete opposite of what he said other places, or there's more to, more to this than just meets the eye. And so let's take a step back. Let's look at this in broader context. If we're going to do that, we first have to understand who this Timothy guy is. Timothy was, if you will, uh, a protege of the Apostle Paul. He was a son in the faith. Paul took Timothy under his wing. He mentored him. He trained him. Then he leaves him in Ephesus to be the pastor of this church. You got to understand something about Ephesus. Ephesus, Ephesus was a, a city. This is a, a literal city. This is a literal person. This is a literal church that the Apostle Paul is writing to. Okay, and what he's doing is he's writing to this church that's in a place where there is a, a huge golden statue of Artemis, this Greek goddess who is the daughter of Zeus. And even in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 19, we're told the story of Paul's first visit to Ephesus. And as he is uh, winning people to the Lord, the silversmiths in the town are a little put out by this. Because as these people become Christians, they no longer need these false gods. Now, that's not good for business. And if your business is making false gods, you don't like Paul. You catching that? My kids aren't going to eat Paul because you're, you're turning people against me. Who cares if what you say is true? My kids need to eat. 
And so they're, they're, they're not, they don't care what Paul's preaching. They don't care whether it's truth. All they care about is bringing home the bacon, if you will. And so there is persecution on Paul and on the church in Ephesus. These people don't like this. I mean, if someone came in to Huron and began to preach and teach that ring-neck pheasants are satanic, and if you touch them, kill them, or in any way have business with them, you will go to hell forever. The city of Huron would take exception with that. Because we have a big idol over there on 4th Street to the ringneck pheasant. See what, see what the problem is? And so that's what's happening. Now, we know that that's not true and what Paul was saying was truth, but to these people, they don't care. I mean, could you imagine the businesses in Huron who rely on hunting season and how that would affect them if all of a sudden this would become taboo and you couldn't do this? There would be riots in the street, if you will. And so that's what's taking place. And now, years later, Timothy is still experiencing this. The church is still experiencing this persecution from the outside. Not only that, but there is a lot of false teaching growing up inside the body of Christ. And so Timothy's almost fighting a war on two fronts. He's got people from outside the church persecuting the church. They've got people from within the church teaching heresy in the body of Christ. And he's trying to fight this war on both fronts. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to encourage Timothy, to encourage this congregation, and to address some of these issues. Now, one thing you've got to remember about the early church is, Timothy didn't have a building like this. So they didn't meet together on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. so that Timothy could address the congregation. For the most part, they met in house churches which meant Timothy may not ever get the chance to address his entire congregation ever. And so for him to be able to do this, he's got to visit with each of the leaders of all of these house churches. Man, there's a lot of work involved in this. So if we're going to correct false teaching, we've got to go from house church to house church to house church to house church to make sure we're doing this. And the Apostle Paul, in the midst of all of this that's taking place, writes this letter to Timothy, and he goes back and forth this entire letter between Timothy and the church, instructing Timothy, instructing the church, helping Timothy, encouraging Timothy, encouraging the church, back and forth. You can see it, Timothy, church, Timothy, church, Timothy, church, Timothy, church, all the way through the letter, this is what he's doing. Now, The longest section there, you can see kind of near the top where it's church from chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 5. This is the longest part of the letter that Paul writes, and it's to the church. And this is where our passage falls. 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy, chapter 2, in this chapter. So let's look at chapter 2. We're going to go back to verse 1. We're going to look at all of chapter 2. Because I believe the overarching message of this chapter is God wants all men to be saved. That's the theme. I mean, if we read chapter 2 and like good Bible Bible college students, we would read this chapter, we'd be like, what's the main idea? I believe the main idea of chapter 2 is God wants all men to be saved. And Paul writes some instructions to the church at large, and he talks first to men and women, both. Here's how God wants all men to be saved. Then he specifically writes to men 
Then he specifically writes to women. And as he's writing to women, he first talks to all the women because he's using plural language. Then he changes to singular language and I believe talks to a woman and then back to plural, again addressing all the women. Now this is such a dramatic grammar change in the, the Greek text. I mean, we look at it in English and we, we may not even catch it. In fact, depending on the translation you read, you might not even have the chance to catch it. But he goes, women, woman, women. That's a big deal in the Greek language. Not as big of a deal in English. And that alone could tell us that he's addressing a specific woman, not all women, everywhere, all the time. And we've got to make sure that we see that. So let's go first to the beginning of the chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and say, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I don't have time to dissect every portion of these, these two chapters, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3, so I'm going to do as much as I can, and then I'm going to leave you to your own study. But again, keeping in mind this persecution from without, this uh, heresy from within could lead us, if we're fighting this war and we're, we're feeling it, we're feeling the pressure of the persecution, we're feeling the pressure of the false teaching that's rising up in the body of Christ. The church would have a tendency to want to just, you know, sit back in self-protective mode and just maintain. You know, just, I don't want to do too much that would get me persecuted. I just want to, you know, take care of my own. I, I, it's just too much. It hurts. It's... It, it, I mean, you understand how if you're in that type of pressure, you could just kind of back off. But the Apostle Paul is saying this is not a time to back off. This is a time to step it up. I mean, the persecution is an absolutely great time for the kingdom of God to advance. In fact, it advances better in persecution than it does when it's not being persecuted. And so Paul, in the midst of all of this, says, first of all, I'm going to urge you to pray. In fact, he gives them four different words for pray. Prayer ought to be preeminence. And what he's saying is, leave no stone unturned when it comes to prayer. Pray in every sort of way. Pray and keep praying and pray for all people. He doesn't leave anybody out. He doesn't leave any type of prayer out. He doesn't leave any type of person out. It's all about prayer. And if you're going to see change, especially in the midst of persecution and false teaching, and you're going to do it but without praying, you're not going to do it. And he starts with this, pray, make sure we pray. And what's the goal? What's the goal of the prayer? That we would lead peaceful and quiet lives. Now we might look at that and think, yeah, that's all I want. I mean, I just want to live a peaceful, quiet life. I just want to have enough money. I just want to have no problems. I want to have good health. That's not what he means, <laughs> Okay, at peace with God, not at peace with the world. Because you can lead a peaceful and quiet life and still be persecuted. 
You can lead a peaceful and quiet life and still have false teaching everywhere. It's not like that all of these prayers have to absolutely be fully answered before you can have peaceful and quiet life. No, that peaceful and quiet life comes from within and it comes as you begin to pray. As you pray for your enemies, you will actually find peace in the midst of your enemies because he sets a table before you in the presence of your enemies. This is why prayer is most important. And it's interesting that he uses this peaceful and quiet life, this peace with God that you're supposed to have, this quiet life before the Lord, meaning that I'm just not reactive. Okay, that's what quiet means. Quiet doesn't mean silent. Quiet means not reactive. I'm gonna lead a peaceful and quiet life. And that's so important because he's saying men and women both should lead peaceful and quiet lives. And later on, that's how he tells women to learn. Peacefully and quietly. He applies that same one to that woman later on. Now, the interesting thing about the Apostle Paul is in these seven verses, he is using a Greek word for man called anthropos. That is a general term for human or man. We translate it man, but we all understand in reading it, when it says God wants all men to be saved, you and I aren't sitting here thinking like, well, women, sorry, you're out. I mean, we, we connect the dots. Because man, in our language, can mean man generally, mankind, or it can mean a man, a physical man. In the Greek, the word anthropos is generally chosen to signify humankind, not man. The word aner is used to signify man or husband. And depending on the context, that's how you find out whether he's talking to a man or to a husband. So when he says there's one mediator between God and people, the human Christ Jesus, that's what he's saying. Him being a man isn't as important as him being God coming as a human. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Paul chooses this word specifically because he's telling us, hey, here's been God's plan all along. He wants all men to be saved. He wants all men to come to knowledge of the truth. Then this is how he's done it. He sent his son. I've became an apostle of this. This is my life's calling to make this known to all men, even the Gentiles. I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. And then he comes to verse 8, and he changes from anthropos to anarch. So we know he's speaking now specifically to men. In this verse, he could be saying he and she. There's a third person uh, emphasis in here. And so we translate it he in this passage a lot of times. But the word could be he or she. Or man or human. And so we got to keep that in mind in these seven verses. But in verse 8, definitely talking to the men. I desire that in every place the men should pray Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, he switches again specifically to the men. He says, men, I want you to pray. I want your hands to be holy. What's he mean? You, we, we need to have like a hand blessing? No, he means your actions should be holy. There shouldn't be blood on your hands. Okay, I don't want you to come together I want you to be holy. I don't want there to be anger and I don't want there to be quarreling. See, your persecutors are angry and quarreling. The false teachers are angry and they're quarreling. Not so among you. You be at peace. Don't be reactive. Don't let them get your dander up, if you will. How many times will it take for the body of Christ to realize that when the world pushes our buttons, 
and we push back, we lose. They're supposed to push our buttons. There's no parameters. We should be completely different because we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. They should be able to push, 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 push. And we lead lead peaceful and quiet lives. That doesn't mean we don't speak out. It doesn't mean we don't teach truth. It doesn't mean we don't proclaim stuff. It just means we don't do it in a reactive way. We live different. We live with holy hands, without anger, without quarreling. Our lives should be in stark contrast to our enemies. When we pray, when we live, this is how it should be. That's what the the Apostle Paul says. Then he says in verse 9, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Now, the reason I chose the English standard is because it does a good job of at least telling us this much. Likewise, women, notice that, should do this. And then he says, let a woman learn quietly. I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. But the woman was deceived. Notice the singular here. And then at the end, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they, what in the world? You're going to get marked off. I mean, if you turn that in to your English teacher this week, she's going to be like, she and they do not go together. Oh, but they do so in the Greek. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. So there's no doubt now he's turning to the women. He's using a word that means women. That's what he's doing. But he's doing it plurally. He's doing it singularly. And he's going back to plural. That first word, likewise, is an important word. In some of your translations, it may say, I also, which I believe is an incorrect translation of the Greek. The word here in the Greek, likewise, is literally an equal sign, if you will, in English. And so when Paul is saying the way that men are to act, in the same way women should act, not just the holiness without, because how many of you know there are differences between men and women? Amen. There are different temptations that come to women that don't come to men. I mean, it used to be, it used to be that pornography was only a male issue. It is no longer. Uh, Pornography has now become a female issue. And uh, again, hate to to jump on the bandwagon, but Fifty Shades of Grey just stirs that up all the more. Okay? Now, it's not any worse than any other movie pretty much that Hollywood makes. So don't you know, throw 50 shades of gray out, throw them all out. Okay, Hollywood has an agenda, so let's just say that. But there are certain things that appeal to men that wouldn't appeal to women. And so when Satan comes to tempt women, he does it differently than he would tempt a man. And so when the Apostle Paul is writing to women, he's not saying that women, you don't have to worry about anger and all those other things, but here's something that's specifically for you. That other stuff applies. Because he says likewise. So when he says in the same way, women, your hands should be holy. Women, you should have no anger or quarreling also, just like the men. But in addition to that, when you live, when you pray, don't make it be about your outward appearance. 
Why does that matter? Because in false teachings, in false uh, religions of the day, for women, sexuality was a big part of it. The better you look when you worship the God, the more he's going to hear you. Women, don't let that be your aim here. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like those outside the church. Don't be like the false teachers that even bring that in. You live different. Your worship should be about your, your inside, not your outside. And now we've taken that and said, women can't wear jewelry. Women can't wear their hair a certain way. Women, He didn't say that at all. What he said was, don't make your worship of God about how you look. In other words, when you come to the front to worship the Lord, don't get your compact out and be all like, how's my hair look? How's it look in the back? What are people behind me seeing? Is my skirt okay? Is my, pa- my pants, excuse me. Is my, are my pants... Don't worry about that. Worship the Lord. And don't let your outward appearance get in the way of that. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying to them. You should pray with decency. You should pray with propriety. And that will be in stark contrast to the persecutors outside the church. It'll be in stark contrast even to the false teachers. Because the false teachers will be more concerned with how they look than how they are. Jesus says you're going to know them by their fruit. Not by their appearance by their inner character so this specific woman that i believe he's talking to how do again there's such a stark change between the plural and the singular that it makes perfect sense that the apostle paul is speaking to timothy about a woman that timothy would know and he doesn't name her by name. But you know, in 1 Corinthians, remember he talks about the guy that's uh, sleeping with, or the, the, the guy that's sleeping with someone that's his daughter or his, his, somebody else's wife. And he's like, what, do you got, what are you doing? I mean, he doesn't say, you know, Jim. He's, he describes the situation. And everybody knows who he's talking about. And so because he doesn't put a name here, he does it in Titus. Warn a divisive person once. Titus knows who he's talking about. He doesn't have to put the name in the scripture. He doesn't have to put the name in the letter. They all know. And so I believe everybody here knows who he's talking about. And what he's doing is he's saying this woman, this this woman, put her somewhere else. Get her out of that position and let her learn quietly. And I'll tell you why I think that here in a second. When Paul talks about false teachers, if all false teachers were men, he would use pronouns that would signify always a man. He doesn't. Oftentimes, he says, let anyone who teaches contrary, meaning anyone male and female, not let the men that teach contrary. So obviously, there are women who are false teachers in the body of Christ because he addresses it in that way in, in all of his letters. And so in that instance... A woman could be a false teacher. And this woman who is teaching falsely, Paul says, this woman, let, I do not let this woman, let a woman, no. Let her be quiet and submissive. Well, what does that mean? That's just a common phrase that would be applied to any student in any time. If you were a Jewish male and you went to learn from a Jewish rabbi, you would be expected to learn quietly with all submissiveness. As opposed to how we learn in our society today, hot-headedly, argumentatively, question everything. No, 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 no. 
Here, listen, learn. Be it quiet, be at peace. There's going to be a time for questions later, but first, listen. Man, as Americans, we would do well to, to learn that way. I think the Bible says be slow to speak and quick to listen. Most of our problem comes because we actually argue our point before we've even heard what the other person's point ever even was. We don't listen. We just assume and we right back. And we wonder why there's all this conflict. Because nobody listening. And if we would just hold our tongue for a little bit, we could learn. And what he's saying is, here, this woman, she's, she's teaching in a way that's inappropriate. And he could have said, you know what? Put her out of the church. She's a false teacher. He's done that before. Get her out of the church. But he says, no, let's pull her out of that position. Let's let her learn quietly, submissively. Because can I tell you something? A false teacher is not going to go quietly and submissively. And so he's giving grace. He brings in Eve. What, what in the world is he bringing in Eve for? I mean, what does this have to do with anything, Paul? Because women were deceived. Eve was deceived. This woman is deceived. And so you know what we've done? Well, that means women are just easily deceived, so they shouldn't be teachers. No, that's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is Eve was easily deceived because she was she didn't have the same education, if you will, that Adam had. Adam heard from God, don't do this. Eve, we believe, didn't actually hear the command straight from God, but she got it from Adam. So she was deceived, but Adam willfully and rebelliously sinned. And that's why the scripture says, Adam, and not Eve, is the reason that all mankind now inherits a sinful nature. That's clear in Scripture. So Paul would be contradicting this if he says that the woman is the one that brought sin into the world. No, Adam did that through his rebellion. Eve did it because she was deceived. In the same way that this woman is deceived. What is he talking about? Up until this point, we've already covered it. Women were uneducated. So now they get a place at the table where they get to learn just like the men. They get to understand just like the men. And a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. If you will, this woman is like a freshman in Bible college. She's dangerous. I know because I was one. I mean, you go to Bible school and you start, you get a little bit of knowledge. So you go back to your home church where your pastor has been there for 45 years, but you know more than him after just two semesters. And so you start teaching him. This is what we do. And this is what some of us did. And it would have been nice if an Apostle Paul would have come along to me and just went, shh, don't speak yet. It's way too soon in your, your training. Oh, but I got to get out there. Shh. You might be mistaken here. And that's what I see Paul doing here to this woman. Tell her she needs to learn. She needs to to be taught sound doctrine because what she's teaching is not sound. And here's the, here's the end of it. Because Eve was deceived, just like this woman, she was deceived. So her sin, I don't believe this woman's being rebellious. She's just deceived. Let's put her in a place where she can learn, where she can grow, where she has the opportunity to receive grace. 
because look, women are going to be saved through childbearing. Paul, what are you doing to me? I mean, that's the Jewish thought, isn't it? Women are going to be saved through childbearing, but we already picked apart. Jesus said, uh-uh, daughters of Abraham. Women are no longer saved through childbearing. And what he actually says in the Greek could mean they're saved through the child that comes through women, the Christ. He could be saying that. So I don't believe Paul is saying women are saved through childbearing. They should just be quiet in the church and have babies, and that's how they're going to be saved. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the women are going to be saved just like the men through the Christ child if they, okay, he's shifted back now, they. So he's applying all of that before to this woman, but now he's applying what comes to all women. All women will be saved if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. That's the truth. That applies to all women. Why would he shift from singular to plural like that if this isn't what he's saying? If he's not talking to a specific woman, this isn't some guy off the street. This is one of the most educated Jews of all time. And so when he's writing, it's not just like his eyesight's bad. He's old now. The prison lighting was bad. He knows what he's doing. And why doesn't he put this woman's name? I don't think he needs to expose this woman because she's been deceived. Let's give her a chance, if you will. Timothy, you go and correct her. You put her into a place where she's not a teacher anymore. When she grows up in the Lord, she's going to be able to do this. Compare that with 2 Corinthians. Or we gotta, I want to talk about 1 Timothy chapter 1, but we got to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I got ahead of myself just a little bit. For those of you that think that women shouldn't teach because only women can be deceived, right here the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 takes the deception of Eve and applies it to all of us. How shameful of us to think that women are more prone to deception than men. In our day, do you know that most cults are started by men? And they do prey on women. So whose sin is worse? The man, the woman, Adam, Eve. Isn't this been the struggle since the garden? Ever since the world began, as Elvis always taught us in the song? Hard-headed woman, soft-hearted man. Been the cause of trouble. Ever since the world began. Some of you didn't think I knew Elvis, did you? Good theology there. Samson told Delilah. All right. So Paul tells us men and women can both equally be deceived. Generally, generally, as we've seen in, in our present day, men aren't as deceived as women when it comes to these false cults. But men do it rebelliously. Men do it full well, knowing what they're doing. They jump in with both feet. Now, that's not all the time. We know men can be deceived just like Eve. So when Paul deals with two false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, what does he say? This, uh, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, rejecting this, meaning I understand it, but I reject it, 
Some have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He calls out two men in chapter 1 and makes an inference on a woman in chapter 2. Why does he do that? Because these men have been educated. These men have grown up, if you will. They're not, their problem is not they're deceived. Their problem is they're rejecting the truth. And when you come to a place where you are willfully rejecting truth, Paul says, I put them out of the church. I turn them over to Satan. Not because I hate them or I'm mad at them, but that's their only hope. This woman who's deceived has a hope. If she will allow herself to be corrected and taught and educated and trained, she'll be able to teach again. But for the time being, uh-uh. Now, I'm not going to tell you 100% absolutely my way is the highway, but I'll tell you what, that way seems to make a whole lot more sense in the Greek language than the other translations do. And the other thing is, those other translations can't even agree. They can't even agree what it means. So if there's any doubt that that's not what it means, why would we put handcuffs on our women and say, we're not going to let you teach? Because... It could be that this is what the Apostle Paul means. Maybe not highly likely, but hey, there's a chance. So let's throw some handcuffs on you and put you in a corner. And I think that's what the body of Christ has done, and I think that's not a good place to live. We move into 1 Timothy chapter 3, and don't worry, those of you that are like, what? I'm going to look at two verses from 1 Timothy chapter 3, because we look at this, and it appears that most of the leaders in the early church are men. That's what it appears like, which absolutely, because at this point, women have been mostly uneducated. So for them to have already reached a qualification stage to be a leader in the church, probably not going to happen right off the bat. There are going to be some women that have some education. There are going to be some women that have some level of training, and they're going to be able to step into it. And I think we saw them in Romans chapter 16. We saw that in in some of the leaders that Paul commends in the book of Acts. And so we can see that there are some leaders, but overall, they're going to be the men because the men are educated at this point. That, that's not a problem for me at all. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this is a trustworthy statement. If anyone, again, there's that generic term, anyone. If only men should aspire to the office of overseer, why does the apostle Paul not say, if any man, anner, He doesn't do that. He doesn't even use anthropos. This is the word for anyone, anything, someone, something. If anyone, clearly anyone, male, female, aspires to the office of overseer, we translated he desires a noble task. That's not a masculine pronoun there. It's just a third person pronoun, gender neutral, meaning he or she desires a noble task. That's what it means. But we translated he because that's what we do. So, down in verse number 11 of chapter 3. Here it is. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. That's it right there. Proves. He's talking about men. Only men can be leaders because he says they're wives. Nope. This is the word for woman or wife, and only the context will tell us what he's talking about. 
Again, when he starts this, that word likewise is an equal sign. It's that same word we just talked about from chapter 2. So in the same way that men should be qualified, likewise the women is an absolutely appropriate translation of this verse. In fact, some translations will actually even footnote this. It could mean women. Well, if it could mean women, why don't you put it up there instead of in the footnote? Well, because our culture won't let us wrap our minds around that. Likewise, women should be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Again, why is there a different list for men and women? There's a gender-neutral list, but there are certain lists that apply to men and apply to women. Generally. All right? Now, we're not all the same. I mean, some things that tempt women have the same temptation on men. Some things that tempt men have the same temptation on women. And so... When the Apostle Paul is stating these facts, and then some people will say, well, but Pastor Thomas says the husband of one wife. Absolutely. Because even in the early church, there were men that were taking more than one wife. Today, in countries around the world, men are becoming Christians, and the church has to deal with, what do we do with their six wives? Because that's the culture they live in. So what do we do? And so in Africa, the church has said, okay, here's what, you pick one to be your wife, you still care for all of them, and you treat them with respect, and you, you pr- provide for them, but you're only going to be sexually intimate with one of them from this day forward. Some people say, well, that's not fair. Well, you know, I know, I, what do you do? But what I'm, thank God we don't, aren't in that mess here in America, where at least it's one wife, one spouse. I mean, we've got our own problems, but praise God, this isn't the day for those. And so, why does he say the husband of one wife? Because at no point in history have there been a woman who has several husbands. It's just not there. There's not a time when the church has had to deal with these wives that are getting saved who have six husbands. I mean, she may have divorced five or six along the way, but she doesn't currently have six husbands. So for the Apostle Paul to say they should be the uh, wife of one husband would be the stupidest thing he could write. Because it ain't ever happened, and it ain't ever going to happen. And so why does he say the husband of one wife? Because it's something that applies. Well, he could have said just the spouse of one spouse. Again, not necessary. The Apostle Paul is not writing with the mindset of, i got to talk to those people in the 21st century. He's talking to people right there. You say, well, Pastor Tom, doesn't it apply to the 21st century? Absolutely. But you have to get into the culture of the day, find out what the Apostle Paul is saying to them, and now we apply it to our culture today. So it speaks to us throughout cultures, but you cannot try to take it in our culture and make it fit first. You've got to find out what it's saying in that culture and then bring it into our culture. So we could look at a lot of things in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but just those two verses and then the husband of one wife, if you look at those, it undercuts the idea that only men should be leaders in the church. I think if you take all of that, we can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that women should not be leaders in the church. In fact, I think the text actually says something different. I think it's actually paving the way for women to be leaders in the church. 
And so because of that, that's why we do what we do. Now, for some of you that have more questions, I've, I've referenced a book throughout this study. It's a book called Why Not Women, written by Lauren Cunningham, David Joel Hamilton. If you didn't get that title or you want that title, talk to me later. Now, there are things that are written. There are things you can study. I've done the best I can to dissect as many of these as we can and try to present it to you. But that's what I think the scriptures are saying to us. That's what I believe they're teaching to us. And that's why we live like we live. I think the danger in the body of Christ is we have belittled women. We have allowed what I think are some incorrect English translations to dictate how we've treated them. And we've done a disservice to them. We've done a disservice to the body of Christ. I said it at the beginning and I'll say it again. God at the beginning created them male and female. He created her to be a partner to Adam. Not a lesser partner, but as we studied that, a partner, his equal partner. There are differences between men and women and those differences are good because if you take a man and a woman and you put them together, they become complete in the eyes of God and they see things from a different perspective and if you only take the one perspective the majority of the time like some husbands do, I'm the king, I'm the head, you just be quiet and let me do my thing, you will make more mistakes than if you listen to the counsel of the one the Lord has put with you. It is not good for man to be alone. It is still not good for man to be alone. I believe it's time for the body of Christ to restore God's original design. That's this redemption process. And so today as we close this service in prayer, I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. Again, I believe most of what has been done throughout history, we have done in ignorance. For the most part, we don't take the time to, to really dig into the scriptures and find out what they're saying. We just think that every translation that's set before us is, has been created equal. They have not. Now, I know that I've talked about this before. I don't want you to get nervous and say, I can't even read the Bible. We're talking about a small minority of scriptures. Most scriptures are cut and dried, and if you read from one translation to the next, they basically say the exact same thing. They just use different words. There are certain passages, like we've kind of picked apart, that are wildly different in each translation. And if you look at the Greek, you understand why. Because these, these scholars wrestle with this, and they don't know what to do. And I don't think any of them got in a room and said, okay, guys, here's the thing. If we translate these correctly, women are going to take over the world. I don't think that's what they did. Okay, I believe they have honestly been in, in error. They may have even been deceived by their own error throughout the years. And you say, well, why throughout church history then have women not been as prevalent? Well, I ask you this. Why throughout church history has the Holy Spirit not been as prevalent? Look at how he was in the book of Acts. How like 300 years later is the Holy Spirit basically non-existent in the church after what happened in the book of Acts? And if that can happen to the Holy Spirit, surely that can happen to our theology on women. Error kind of creeps its way in when we don't continue to do diligence and study the Word of God. And that's where we've come to, this crossroads where we have to choose now, what are we going to do? Are we going to study and apply what we believe to be truth, or are we just going to keep toeing the line? And I hope we stand on the side of truth. And so, Father, today... I pray for myself. I pray for this congregation. God, as we have looked at these difficult to understand passages, God, we recognize that 
this may be not as cut and dried as we hoped it would be. We confess that as Americans, we like our microwaves. We like our fast food. God, we want to be able to just go to your word, get a straight answer, and then just walk away. And we recognize there are times that we really have to dig in. God, we really have to do some research. We really have to, to understand the mindset of the people that you were talking to when the scripture was written. You've said it in your word that we should be diligent students of your word. We should faithfully handle it. God, throughout the years, we've been lazy with your word. Throughout the years, we've not been as faithful as we should. And we've done damage. We have mistreated women in the body of Christ. We have twisted your word to say things that you probably haven't said from the beginning. And so God, we repent. We repent. We ask that you would open up our hearts and our minds and bring healing to the body of Christ. Father, I pray for every woman in this room today that you would bring healing upon each and every woman in this place for things that have been quoted to her, spoken over her throughout the years. God, that you would bring complete restoration and wholeness. God, that the women would not become reactive, but they would, as we have talked about, be quiet and submissive just like the men. God, that we as believers would not become reactive to our enemies, but God, that we would be quiet and submissive, that we would be at peace with you and we would proclaim the truth, not in a way, God, that is reactive, but in a way that is secure and whole in you. So Father, bring us to truth and help us to walk it out in our daily lives. For those that still have questions, Holy Spirit, continue to guide us as we study these passages and we seek to apply them to our lives. And so God, today we just ask for your continued direction, your blessing upon this church as we go forward. God, I pray that you would guide and direct the decisions we make. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go today.